0: This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation? Huh? The sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys. Here we go again. Hunt is uniquely trained and highly motivated. A specialist without equal. Immune to any countermeasures. There is no security he cannot breach. No person he cannot become. He has likely anticipated this very conversation, sir. Hunt is a living manifestation of destiny and he has made you his mission
1: hey guys and welcome to franchise fatigue podcast this is a podcast where we talk about movie series one film at a time uh, i am your host james hamrick and with me is my co-host gabe green what's going on man
0: hey i'm doing pretty well uh, <laughs> that intro was a bit of a mouthful i had to had to cut it down but you know there's just too much greatness there to, to lose too much
1: yeah and uh, I applaud you on your attempt at uh, <laughs> recreating the uh, the ferocity of of Baldwin's delivery. Yeah, I'm, day.
0: I, I'm no Alec Baldwin, sadly. Yeah. So, um, how's your week been? Mine's been pretty fun.
1: Uh, busy. Um, I was telling you before, uh, before we started recording, it's weird. It's it's really up and down. Where some days I will really not have a whole lot to do in terms of coursework, and then. The next day, everything will be piled on with a very short due date. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> I wish I could have been doing these this last couple of days, but oh, well, um, and tomorrow's going to be incredibly busy. And Anthony Daniels has just teased some sort of Star Wars news coming. So he's <laughs> probably just put a wrinkle into <laughs> my studious plans I had for tomorrow.
0: A good wrinkle. Very, very good wrinkle. Uh, yeah. So I actually moved to a new place this weekend, um, so that was fun. Uh, I'm not sure how it'll affect the audio. I used to be in kind of a closet. Now I'm in kind of more of an open room, and there's uh, four, other, like three other roommates, and thin walls. So I hope it doesn't hurt the audio quality too much. But we will see. Um, so we are still uh, in the Mission Impossible series. We are finally nearing the end, and I'm not, I'm not quite ready to let this go yet. Uh, but we are here to talk about the fifth film in the series, Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation, uh, which is kind of becoming uh, more and more important to the series with every every new announcement of a director, or of the director. <laughs> uh, before we begin our discussion on that, I want to ask you guys, uh, if you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We would be very uh, very appreciative. And also, if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. I asked on Facebook uh, what our listeners thought of Rogue Nation, and we got some feedback. Byron said, best in the franchise, in my opinion. Everything was perfect. Script, stunts, action, direction, and acting. And he is correct. Um, Shane said, slickly made and labyrinth plotting until the third act loses some steam a wee bit. Still a great movie. Uh, I think I have some disagreements on the third act. We'll get into that. Uh, But definitely, definitely a great movie. Uh, Hannah said, practically perfect in every way. Uh, Now I just want Emily Blunt in a Mission Impossible film. Hmm. Silas said, it was my favorite in the series until I saw Fallout the other night. David said, uh, the opera scene is a favorite of mine. And oh, yes. And finally, Don Shanahan from Every Movie Has a Lesson said, I'm the guy that likes it better than Fallout. And guess what? I'm that guy, too. Spoilers.
1: Which is why I'm on here to counteract that. Just kidding. Actually, it's a. honestly, this most recent watching, and I'm sure I'll get into this later, has really helped me understand why this is the favorite of many.
0: And maybe, who knows? Maybe it'll change next week when we do Fallout. So, uh, James, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, behind-the-scenes making of this film?
1: Sure, yeah. So, um, after Gr- uh, Ghost Protocol came out, Cruz went on to make Jack Reacher with Christopher McQuarrie, both writing and directing that film. Also, uh, we we covered that on Underrated. That is a great action film. Really, you know, what's, what's really fun about that movie, especially within context of the modern action blockbuster with the fast and furious and any even mission impossible movies is that one is a lot more laid back and a lot smaller um but it man slickly made is exactly how i described that film so go check it out
0: yeah you you can tell he has those awesome action thriller chops back then and that, that movie made me an enormous fan so when he was announced as the director of a uh, Road nation i kind of lost my mind
1: very very good movie um So then they went on to make Edge of Tomorrow, where McQuarrie served as a writer and splinter unit director. Um, So while they were working on that film, Cruz approached McQuarrie and asked him to direct Mission Possible 6, uh, and then he was officially announced as the director in 2013.
0: Uh, Drew Pierce of Iron Man 3 fame was the original writer uh, hired for this film after McQuarrie was brought on. Then in June of 2014, Will Staples was brought on to replace uh, Pierce as writer. One of the ideas they had early on was to try and bring back the character of Dan Briggs. Uh, I I believe he was kind of like the leader of the team in the first season of the original show. Uh, But they couldn't find a way to work it into the story, and it was eventually dropped. Um, Eventually, Macquarie took over as the sole writer, although um, Pierce still received a uh, story credit. And the funny thing about about the writing with this movie is that Macquarie, as the story goes, didn't actually have really a script when they like when they started shooting all they had was like a bunch of action scenes and throughout the shoot he was just writing to connect to make scenes that would connect all these action ideas they had and to make it make sense which we'll get into that later but this i I just don't understand how that was done because this probably has the best story in the entire series
1: yeah this holds up together really well so as far as casting um of course we had a large number of returning cast members Um, Tom Cruise obviously came back along with Ving Rhames uh, and Simon Pegg and Jeremy Renner Um, and I I really like that uh, Renner came back it was obvious that he was going to at least be a mainstay after Ghost Protocol despite not taking over like what was initially rumored Um, but I like that at this point we've got like three full characters who are like who are coming back and rounding out the IMF and not just the who are we going to see this time I think that's what makes especially in a marathon these the latter half of this series really enjoyable to watch because we feel like we have a really a real tangible you know familiar team we get to work with
0: yeah th- th- there's there's a, a kind of a pleasant whiplash going to, through all these different directors but then as you get towards the end it, it starts to, it, it, it kind of finds its stride and you know both both uh both sides have their advantages but I don't know I, I just like uh you know Benji and Brant
1: yeah and like for someone who really cares about continuity and and all the good that comes with watching a series like just film after film going through with the same characters I think once you find that level of tonal coherence and and uh, continuity and stuff it makes it makes it a lot more enjoyable um, so in addition to that returning cast um, Pixar director and animator Teddy Newton returned to provide the voice of the Mission Impossible re- or, uh, sorry of the mission recordings from Ghost Protocol um, he's also the voice of the jet in the incredibles um, the would you would you like more mimosa guy <laughs> rebecca ferguson was originally overlooked when casting for the role of ilsa faust but as the writing for the character evolved they came back around and ended up casting her uh... sean harris was initially very hesitant to play the villain solomon lane he didn't want to be caught in a franchise and only agreed to do it if mcquery promised to kill him in this film so he wouldn't have to worry about coming back in the next one um, we'll talk about that uh alec baldwin was cast as the secondary antagonist alan hunley um a character that i actually really like and again we'll talk more about that um simon McBurney as the chief Atley of mi6
0: this guy that guy plays like mid-level british uh bureaucrat like intelligence bureaucrat in a lot of different i movies.
1: think that's because he was born to play that role like there's something about just the shape of his face and the sound of his voice where it's like, this is exactly where you need to be. Tom Hollander as the British Prime Minister, uh, Jens Holton uh, as Janet Vinter, or as his much cooler name, the Bone Doctor, uh, and Zhang Jinchu, who plays the woman running the polygraph on Benji, uh was originally supposed to have a much larger role, actually. There's going to be some flirtation between them, uh, and even a possible relationship, but all that was cut. She gets her one seed in the film. And I meant to look this up to get a name. but the the girl who gives him his mission in the first scene, she's also um
0: Hermione something. Uh, I know who you're talking about. she's in the last yeah, Jedi.
1: This is, so the last Jedi is her second uh, film, like big franchise film where she shows up. And I'm like, ooh, I wonder who she's going to be. And she dies as soon as we see her. So
0: Hermione Corfield's her name.
1: There we go, yeah.
0: So cinematographer Roger Elswit returned from Ghost Protocol to shoot, uh, to shoot this one. Principal photography began in August 2014 in Vienna, Austria. They shot for a few hours on the, in the uh, Vienna State Opera before recreating uh, the entire kind of opera house in a studio to, to do the rest of the shoot robot morocco was used as a stand-in for casablanca and the stage shooting was done in london uh the opening scenes where tom cruise hangs off a plane were shot for real with a cruise strapped to the side of an airbus a400 atlas and they did that they did that shot eight times with a <laughs> tom strapped to the side of a, of a plane which is just stupid <laughs> Uh, and while prepping for the terminus sequence, uh, which is the underwater heist, uh, Cruz trained to hold his breath with a specialist and they say he went up to six minutes, uh, oh, in training. Yeah. Cause they, like while filming, they would, they would have him you know, holding his breath for like a full minute just, just to make the scene easier to shoot. They had, you know, they had him build up his stamina so that he could, you know, be underwater while they do all these crazy movements and stuff, which is the guy's a nut. <laughs> Uh, in early 2015, the filming was stopped so Macquarie could rework the ending. They had originally planned for a much larger action set piece to be the film's finale, wherein uh, Ethan would kill Lane, but they could never figure out how to top the previous set pieces and you know, and give it a satisfying ending, so they eventually reworked it into what we have in the film. And just that obviously involved Ethan capturing instead of killing Lane, and uh, that didn't make Sean Harris all that happy. The original release date was going to be December 15th, 2015, uh, however, it was, it was moved up to July 31st to get away from uh, The Force Awakens, and then so also so it would come out before Spectre, which uh, came out in November. Joe Kramer, who scored Macquarie's two previous films, uh, was brought on as the composer. He woven several pieces from the uh, opera Turandot, uh, which it kind of appears throughout the film. Namely, like, Ilsa's theme is like a piece taken out of the opera. And when he, when putting together the opera sequence, uh, Macquarie, Macquarie and editor Eddie Hamilton, they basically rearranged the opera so that it would it would basically match the uh the action on screen kind of just taking pieces bits and pieces from here and there to you know to to make it uh, flow better with the uh, rhythm of the scene and then kramer kind of came in and then smoothed it all over uh making it sound like one piece of music and if you're interested in looking deeper into the production of this film there's a two hour and 40 minute interview with chris Macquarie on the empire film podcast where he goes over like the entire production of the film in detail and I would highly recommend that it is just one of the best uh, you kind of looks into the production of a blockbuster film that I've ever seen. And I've actually listened to it again for the second time this week, and Macquarie is just such a joy to listen to. So, James, do you remember seeing your first time seeing this film, and what has your relationship with it been like over the years?
1: In this case, it's actually only over the year. So this was, again, with this marathon that was leading up to Fallout. Like I said, the Fallout trailers won me over. And I'm like, I'm gonna I'm really going to commit. Uh, although after, you know, 3 and uh, Ghost Protocol, um, I, it wasn't really like, oh, I've got to go watch another Mission Impossible. I was very much on board with the series at that point. Um, so my first viewing of it, though, I watched 3, Ghost Protocol, and Rogue Nation back-to-back-to-back, to back to back. and I, I had a hard time, like different, not differentiating them from each other, but just, I guess, trying to put each of them into perspective and, and get an idea on which one I had above the other. Um, so my first thoughts across all three of these were like, oh, these are really, really good movies, and I saw no immediate reason to put one like a good bit above the other or, or whatever, and that's kind of how it had been for a long while, pretty much up until this more recent rewatch. Um, and then this, I really started, like I said earlier, understanding why this has so much love that it does. Um, one, I think I'm, there, there's just a style of filmmaking that I really, really enjoy, which is kind of this, this gritty action take with just enough of a hint of like style to, to make it memorable and unique. Um, and this really start like McQuarrie does that, that tone really, really well, and so, totally, it worked really, uh, really well for me. This most recent viewing, and just like the intricacies of uh, of some of the sequences stood out a lot more. Like I remember for some reason the the opera scene the first time I was like, yeah, this is really good. And then this this most recent viewing I was like, this is amazing. Like this sequence works <laughs> on so many different levels. Like it's there's so many cool things going on at once. And uh, yeah, so I. I I'm definitely glad that I watched it again before recording because I have a much higher appreciation for the film now.
0: Yeah, so uh, by, the t- by the time this one came out, I was a, a huge fan of both the Mission Impossible series and Chris McQuarrie. Um, and I th- I think I saw it twice, uh, like opening week. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I saw it a third time. Uh, but it, it, that would make it the first Mission Impossible for my son in theaters. And I loved it then and pretty much have loved it just a little bit more every single time I've seen it, which has been many. So just, just right off the bat, uh, wh- what do you think Chris McQuarrie as a director? Like each director has really brought in their own style and stamp, and, and and a lot to you know to the soul of what these films are. What do you think a McQuarrie as a director brings to this uh, to this film and, and the series?
1: Well, one of the things is is what I had mentioned earlier, which is this tone. I think it's it's just a bit less playful and lighthearted than something like Ghost Protocol. I think Ghost Protocol is where some of the
0: Just a bit. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. Just a girl gets executed in the opening scene. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Yeah, I
1: mean, it's a little bit heavier, I would say. Um, I think a lot of like the comparisons to other series like Fast and the Furious, I think a lot of that comes from Ghost Protocol. Uh, And then here we see a lot more in common with some of the other like more gritty spy kind of action films. Uh, And so, I think he he has a really, really strong control of tone and atmosphere. Um, Maybe the, I would say probably the strongest since the original, um, of just this kind of like this seriousness that's hanging over everything. And it's it's weird because it's like it's this perfect balance where when the humor comes, it never feels jarring and it never undermines anything. And it, just because the humor in this film for me is just so integral to the characters themselves, that it just feels natural. And it's like this is what this person would be doing mm-hmm. under this stressful situation. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of it is just tone and atmosphere, and I think probably. The thing that's going to be only made more apparent with every new f- action film he does is just how like how above competent he is with with action. Um, the way he shoots some of these scenes is amazing. Um, there are things that I want to point out, but looking through your notes, I I don't want to steal your thunder. But his the way um, the way he like his, his use of camera. His camera work is amazing, but it's not super showy all the time. And he, he has a way, and like, it's, <laughs> looking forward, I know you're going to agree with this. He has a way of like making the action on the screen be enough to make what we're seeing feel like dazzling and extravagant and like there's some huge amounts of style. But really, he, he's not. Doing crazy things with with the camera, he is every now and then. But like, I don't know. It's just he's got a weird way, in weird in the best way, of like doing things with the camera, both like subtly and then going big when he needs to, with incredible choreography and staging, and yeah. So just proficiency with action, along with the total control of atmosphere. Um, I think that's something that's that's very within his wheelhouse.
0: Yes, yeah, so if I had to pick two films in the Mission Impossible series that look the most like each other, it would be uh, Ghost Protocol and Road Nation. Both were shot by Roger Ellsworth, so that makes sense. However, there are some fairly distinct things that I think Macquarie does that makes him stand out from what Bird did. I mean, one, his camera work isn't nearly as like just as it, it, there's not nearly as much motion behind the camera. It's not like the, he doesn't have like awesome cartoonish uh, kind of flourish that Bird had. But one thing I think he does bring is he—he he has a much stronger sense of composition. Just like yeah. every shot in this movie is just—it just looks great. Like whether there's you know action or just people sitting around talking, to the shot reverse shots, all of it looks exquisite. And there's a—I think the color palette is a bit more muted. This you know the, kind of the whites are a little more blown out. It, it 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 it's what he what he's really hearkening to with this movie is a, like of kind of a, a very atmospheric. Cold War spy film, and he he goes like full out, you know, completely all out in that tone in the next one. So it's not nearly as pronounced here, but it's definitely present. Just as you said, there's this atmosphere of danger. I think a lot a lot of that is also in uh, Joe Kramer's score, which uh, it borrows a lot from Giacchino, uh, but also has this kind of this, this sense of just danger. McQuarrie actually said he was kind of trying to make a greatest hits of Mission Impossible, and it really does feel like that because what you have is you have like the the atmosphere the the kind of paranoia and just doubt and kind of mind bending sense that uh uh De Palma brought to M- Mission Impossible the first one and you have like the uh the emotion and uh, kind of heart and character development of Mission Impossible 3 then you, then you have like the crazy uh, stunts and spectacle of like a Ghost Protocol, and then most importantly, the amazing hair from Mission Impossible Two. So he brings all of the.
1: Uh, it's all you need to borrow. Yeah,
0: <laughs> he brings all the pieces together and just makes this beautifully cohesive film that just does everything you could ever want from a Mission Impossible film, um, while also you know, and, and, but it doesn't. It doesn't feel like this crazy Frankenstein. It feels like. Well, this is what Mission Impossible is always meant to be.
1: Yeah, I agree with all of that. Like, I, I know we're probably going to talk a lot more about this with Fallout. Um, just you know, once now that we've pretty much settled on McQuarrie as like the guy for the series, we are going to start losing, and I I think we're going to feel that more than more than ever with the next film, losing that distinct style and new voice with every new film. However, you know, if there was a style and voice that we had to stick to, I'm super happy it's, it's McQuarrie, because like you said, this kind of, this feels like everything about Mission Impossible that I enjoy, and I'm totally cool with like this kind of being, being what we have going forward in tone, in terms of tone, because I think it balances all of the, like the fun characters and dynamic from everything, but in terms of the direction and, and tone, I think this, this should please everyone who's like something about the series.
0: Yeah. And just, I want to go back to just how Macquarie directs action. I, I love that. He just, he often will just pull the camera back. And I, I noticed this a lot in Jack Reacher. like the, 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 the hand-to-hand combat in that is incredible. And he just, he just pulls the camera back, but has the fight scene so well choreographed that, you don't you don't miss awesome camera motion, and it's not. I'm to say that he's not afraid to you know put the camera in there, and and, and you you know, do movements that accentuate the action, but it's it's always it's a lot more subtle than Bird would have done. Um, but just the main thing about what he does is he just makes what is happening within the frame, even the camera can be locked down on a tripod. But what is happening in the frame brings so much energy. Uh, I guess it reminded me of a lot of how uh, Lucas directed. Um. Like a, a new hope, where he would just kind of lock the camera.
1: <laughs> That's exactly what I was on thinking. a
0: tripod, and then just have all this motion happening within the frame. And that film has incredible energy. And you know, it, McCoy's a lot, a much more dynamic filmmaker than Lucas was. But that, that, I'm just trying to you know get across that idea of it's a very classical style, but he's using you know modern effects and modern technology to Just give us this exhilarating feeling of action whenever you know the, the, the variety of action that he brings to this you know he gives us this cl- really classic uh kind of hitchcockian uh set piece with um with the opera house which reminds me a bit of the uh the the first uh operation in the first mission impossible film where they're infiltrating the embassy like it, where it's just all these moving pieces just flowing together beautifully. Then we get this. It
1: really co- reminded me of like the ending of Charade, which uh, is not Hitchcock, but very much within that kind of um, fun but surrounded by paranoia kind of thriller.
0: I've never even heard of this movie. What is it?
1: It's a it's a really really good like thriller, but like more lighthearted thriller um, in the '60s with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. It's fantastic. Some of the some of the greatest quips and banter. That any movie on this planet has to offer. Now I really need um, to see this. <laughs> it's it's really really fantastic. But anyways, the opera house. It, it reminded me, um, especially more that now that you um, brought up the fact that McQuarrie often feels very classical in his direction. It feels like that old school style of uh, of filmmaking where like you've got these different things going on, and it's it's all about staging and and location, especially when you couldn't just do these huge extravagant things with the camera you really relied on, on the environment and stuff like that. Yeah.
0: Unless we spend this entire uh, podcast praising Macquarie's action direction. Uh, let's move it just kind of into story. And one of my big complaints last episode was uh, the story of Ghost Protocol. And that's kind of, there was also an issue in Mission Impossible 2 and to a lesser extent on uh, Mission Impossible, uh, which is kind of, they had a, there was kind of a lack of this really strong driving plot that, that kind of encased the entire film. They kind of just felt like isolated set pieces or just isolated sitting in a barn in Australia in Mission Impossible 2's case um, this film I think I think it has the best story in the series uh, would you agree with that Um. so
1: I'm gonna need I need to sit and reflect on this and 3 and Fallout because my gut instinct in terms of plot is to go 3 Fallout Rogue Nation but I still need to think about it uh, but I would say that these three, I I probably lump in the original and there. those four have like by far the the best like core plot, in my opinion.
0: Like, what I what, like I I do love Mission Impossible three story, but it's very succinct. It's, it's very straightforward. What I love about this one is it's just how I, uh, just to use the word up. Shane said is like la, la, labyrinth labyrinthian. Is that that's how you pronounce it? <laughs> uh, it's a word now. It has a the plot is just it's like a Swiss watch. There are so many moving pieces and parts and, and like, but, and also what is amazing about this film is that the plot it's even though it's so complex, every step of the way is rooted in character. Like you, you know, you have all these moving pieces with Ethan, with Brant, with Hunley, with Atley, with, uh, you know, Elaine, Ilsa, all of these people have their own agendas and all of that is, is, you know, constantly forcing the story and, you know, a dozen different directions but all of that is rooted in character and theme and you know what the movie's about so it never it never feels like oh great another twist yep you know what do you do like often when you have films that are really twisty they kind of forget what they're about and they just start being about the twist and there's another twist and another twist and I, I don't ever feel that here. Here when I'm watching this movie, every time you know, another thing happens and another wrinkle is thrown in, I just kind of lean forward like, "Oh my gosh, what that means this for this character? And that's that that and that's going to push this person in this direction." Like it all just, it just means something. There's, there's there's an emotional impact behind every single wrinkle that's thrown at us, and that's amazing. You know, you know that, that's what you know, most thrillers and action films are aiming for, but most don't entirely work that way.
1: So, despite the fact that I'm like really happy that I I rewatched it again for this episode, I actually want to rewatch it again because I think uh, where a lot of the love and appreciation for this film comes from, you know, from people like you and other people who just like put this at the at the very top, is that you know, consistently on rewatches you get a better and better and more focused idea on what is this movie really about, just you know because just in the moment it is really twisting we are moving from this to that and I think you know having only seen it twice now the reason why I couldn't confidently say where I thought like whether it was the best plot of them all or or not is because even still with with the second viewing for me I feel like you know we're being introduced to this obstacle and then as soon as we're doing this we found out this and then as soon as soon as we're doing this we found out this and I think I'm. I'm gonna compare it to a movie that I'll admit this other movie is much lesser. Um, but it was to the same. It was kind of the same complaint I had with uh, Spectre, but to a, a smaller extent here, where whenever we're um, introduced to the big organization in Spectre, it feels like it's supposed to be, have these huge implications, and we're like that's supposed to kind of be enough to wrap up, but uh, wrap us up in the plot, and and like I said. I felt that just a little bit here, um, where we're told about the syndicate. We had that throwaway line in, in Ghost Protocol. We're told about them here, but by the time we we really start moving, they're this huge thing, and Solomon Lane is this person that we're all about. And I, I haven't quite gotten to the point to where like I have a, a solid idea on like who is this guy, what are these guys about, why does this feel like it's kind of like the The tipping point or like the the tip of the spear the climax that we've been building towards whenever it feels like i'm just constantly being introduced to this barrage of new information about them and um i don't know i feel like even on a second viewing in terms of the plot i don't have a lot of breathing room Mm -hmm. and we get that moment where he catches benji up to date and we're really allowed kind of all the information that ethan has and time to digest it but even still like as soon as we have time to process that, it's another twist and another turn. And um, I'm not ready to call all of those things flaws just because I don't think I've I've seen the movie enough and really grasped everything it's doing.
0: Yeah, I will be very interested to see how you feel after like a third and fourth viewing because I I do remember that I thought I, I remember like when, when my first and second view, even though I love the film, I thought it kind of had some plot holes. And it wasn't until, you know, you know, third, fourth, fifth viewings where all the little pieces that kind of bothered me before kind of just fell into place to make it such a coherent story. So I'm really interested to see, you know, what you think after having seen it more times. If 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 that is still a problem for you, or if it kind of like it did with me, kind of smooths out. Um, let's just talk about Lane then, since you brought it up. Uh, I think this guy is like he's he's not he's he's not quite Philip Seymour Hoffman, but I think he's really up there, probably easily the second best. Like not even counting. Fallout, just in here. I think he's easily the second best villain in the series. Um, I mean, that's not saying a lot, but I think he is a really good villain. Sean Harris is not the kind of guy you would look at, uh, you know, and and like, oh, that's that's a really terrifying villain from you know a, a, a spy film. He's got he's got this very soft voice, like almost a lisp, and like kind of a, a you know a slightly odd looking face. Like he, he doesn't he doesn't look imposing or scary at all but I, I think the actor really brings a lot to the performance um i love how he like, he has no sense of personal space like when he as he gets angry he just kind of gets like closer in your face and, like like just he he's so enraged she can't when he puts his yeah. hand on
1: ilsa and he's like I'm, I'm eager to find out who you blame for what's about to happen yeah like he's chilling.
0: And he, like you do get the sense that this guy has thought of everything and you know he he spends the entire movie like way ahead of Ethan. Like the entire film he is you know he Ethan is literally just uh you know uh Lane's pawn up until like the like halfway through the third act. Um and I he just he has this sense of presence. There's just something scary about him. But I'll, I will but even past you just with the performance. I, I really, I think the character is fascinating. When the, the, the scene at the restaurant, you know, at the cafe, when everyone's brought together and Ethan's, you know, Ethan, when Ethan's, you know, finally getting the upper hand, he's talking about, you know, he's talking to uh, Lane and finally we're getting a, a peek into his psyche. I, I really wish I wrote the quote down, but I don't have it. He says, you know, your government made you kill all these innocent people, you know, and and eventually, you just you you woke up and realized you were a monster, and instead of you know taking responsibility for your actions, you blame the system, and now he's he's like working to bring the system down. And we have with Lane, and he has a similar speech to um to Benji, where Benji says, you know you killed innocent people. He says, i I helped my government kill many innocent people and more, so much more. killing to keep things the way they were. Now I'm killing to bring about change. And what you have with this character is someone, who was probably already some kind of sociopath who joined the government, and 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 then and, you know, and saw himself, you know, killing, murdering, you know, probably dozens of innocent people and doing, you know, who knows what else, and and not for any actual, you know, good reason, not not to make the world a better place, but simply to serve the ends of people like Atley, who are literally there just to maintain the status quo. It's not about serving country. It's not about bringing good to the world. It's literally just you know killing people. To maintain power for these corrupt, sleazy bureaucrats, and you know, you have Lane who woke up one day and realized I'm a monster. You know, I have all this blood on my hands, and it doesn't mean anything. It wasn't do- it wasn't done for any good reason. So what he's literally doing is just trying to break the system. He's basically an anarchist. He's like, the system is broken. The system turned me. The system turned me into a monster. So I'm just going to destroy it. But he's also well you know completely aware of the fact that he's a monster he's a, you know, a sociopath so he's just gonna kill whoever stands in his way but in his mind he's taking revenge on the system that turned him into this monster um i just find that really fascinating just it's you know, the kind of a character who who is a monster but is kind of but is like self-loathing about the fact that he has been turned into this 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 murderer by the system
1: Yeah, I I agree in calling him like the second best of the series, at least to this point. Um, I think what I really noticed this most recent viewing is how much of an impact he has on the film for coming in, like in a major way, so late in the game. Like we have that initial look at him, but after that he's gone for a huge portion of time. Something just
0: came to me. And yet. It's literally the same introduction as Philip Seymour Hoffman. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, where you get that tease that really, like, lay, makes a mark, and then you miss him for so long. But he's, like, because of that introduction, you feel him looming over everything. I mean, And then he obviously he comes back in a major way. And so all of his appearances are ordered in such a way where, like, in retrospect, when I'm thinking about the movie, he just instantly comes to mind. He's such a defining piece of the film. And uh, just in terms of, you know, talking about the acting, I think Harris is really fantastic here. Um, like you said, it's he's not physically intimidating and he's got kind of like... That. Not until he grows a beard. <laughs> yeah, and then he just looks like he'll kill you in a pub somewhere. Um, but, but here he looks like that kind of, you know, sharp, angular-faced analyst in the corner of some room. You know, like... Th- the the cold guy making these decisions who finally snapped one day he had a very david Tennant quality to me huh. but yeah. he uses this kind of like unassuming small like just quiet kind of analyst look to him and this is very soft smoke uh soft spoken voice to his advantage to where like when he's getting up in your face this is very like his cold analytical eyes are like just completely cert like scanning you and he's got that that really soft but creepy irish voice in your ear like whispering all of these things there's something so like t- creepy uh about him but also like he he finds a way to make himself feel imposing like whenever um he's given the drive from ilsa and it turns out to be empty and everything you feel like he has all the power in this situation, you know. After after a certain amount of scenes, he has a way of just firmly establishing, "I'm the guy in charge," and that's something that should scare you.
0: Yeah, like he he fancies himself kind of like a manipulator of men, and and the entire film. Once you get to the end, you realize the entire story is literally him manipulating Ilsa and Ethan to to get what he wants to to get the uh, to get the uh, the, the the disc, the drive, which has the funding for his organization, so he can destroy the world. He's, you know, he he and one thing is always a little weird, but I think it, it really came together for this final viewing was the the way like he knows Ilsa has her own thing going on. He knows she's not fully one hundred percent loyal to him. But I think he, I think I, I think the interesting thing about him, as opposed to most other villains, where most other villains are just in it for themselves, he is. A, a true believer. He believes in what he's doing. He and so he's kind of trying to win her. He like he sees her skill. He knows you know how valuable an asset she is and she would be be to him. So he's kind of trying he I, I you know I, I'm not entirely sure if he's aware if she is still working for Atley, but I, I if he does, I think he also knows that she has literally been you know hung out to dry by her government. So he knows like she is she's very susceptible to his teaching you know she is you know kind of the literal embodiment of how soulless the very government he's trying to destroy so like he's kind of like wooing her and giving her these chances because you know he he knows her skill also also due to her connection with ethan you know she she can you know get ethan to help steal whatever he wants like the entire thing he's just constantly manipulating people and he's manipulating ethan's attachment to ilsa um well with with that scene at, at towards the end where they where they he he gets her to meet meet Ethan so he can go and kidnap Benji like he's just playing people he doesn't like he doesn't actually do anything like up until that final act his his players like his people aren't really ever active players in the plot it, it really is all Ethan and Ilsa running around doing his will without him even knowing it
1: yeah i think one of the big things like my new takeaways from this most recent viewing is I was tempted to call like his relationship with ilsa i don't know if it's a not like a plot hole but just like kind of lazy writing where he's being established as this this puppeteer and this master manipulator i'm like man every every step of your plan involves this like fickle person who's like who who knows where her allegiance lies and is gonna do this and that at any turn and and stuff but I think what i really appreciated this other viewing was the fact especially like paying more attention to just what defines him as a character and this like just feeling not betrayed but just used in the grossest kind of cold way by governments and um and knowing that that's where his anger and frustration stems from like because of that's so that hits so close uh to home for him he sees that in Ilsa, and so I'm like, no, he's not. He's not like putting all of his, you know, all of his his eggs in this one basket that could turn him at any point. He's relying on the system that turned him into a monster to continue to be the horrible system that it is. Like you said, he knows that they're going to be willing to hang her out to dry at any step of the way. You know, um, there's there's really no way for her to go back and and be re-accepted into, you know, MI6 or whatever it was that she was. Um, and so he's kind of just consistently ensuring that he's like the one branch being offered. You know, every time you try to go back and they say, no, we're not done yet, I'm the one constant. And I've also got, you know, this this gun on you pretty much. And so the second that you don't come back to the to this branch which happens to be the only one being offered i can end it anyways like this is this is not lazy writing at all this is incorporating the things that define him as a person and using that in a in a way with the story to like kind of explain how he knows how he can control her and and things like that and and uh yeah definitely changed the way i saw him as a villain because i liked his acting even on the first viewing um, but I just wasn't sold on him as being this kind of big analytical guy who's gonna play every every person to to accomplish his will because it it seemed like he was relying too much on coincidence. But but I don't think that's the case now.
0: Yeah, and the thing I I love about him is that he's not wrong. Like he's not right, but he's also not entirely wrong because I love I love that the film was bold enough to literally give us a character like Atlee Who is exactly every? Who is a villain, and he's uh, like he he is one of the one of the major antagonists in the film, and he's like completely evil and sleazy, and yet he is everything the bad guy is supposedly fighting against. So like we, we, it's not like oh he's just kind of oh vague government corruption. We literally see this this person who is fighting only for himself. Like he's not he's not in this for key and country or anything else. He's just. You know, he he made a mistake. He accidentally he accidentally let let uh, Solomon Lane loose, and now he's only just trying to you know to to brush it under the rug, and he's willing to sacrifice Ilsa, you know, on the way to doing that. Um,
1: okay. He's pretty much fighting Billy Crudup from Mission Impossible Three.
0: Yeah, and like he, oh gosh the the scene when he when he sends her back in, and you know, and it's like a really emotional scene, and Ilsa so obviously trapped, and he sends her back in. And then he moves the paper, and you see files deleted. He's like, "I, I'm just gonna strangle you!" You're Just so evil, and the 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 actor is, is so good. He's just like so perfectly sleazy. Um, and then just like, just this like self righteous bureaucrat that is just so easily hateable. Um, yes, yeah, so it's just a, a, a very it's just a very smart movie where no like they they don't just give us a purely evil villain. It's a guy with a very good point who is also you know, a fascinating character. And then also giving us a great example of why he's not entirely wrong.
1: Yeah, if I had like one criticism surrounding him as a character that I wish we had more time with him. Um and maybe not more time with him. I think the the amount of screen time he has is uh is solid. I guess I just wish we had more time to deal with him as a person and as a character and, you know, where his motivations come from. I think the movie does a great job at giving us enough information to extrapolate all these details from. Uh, but I think whenever like if you're describing him as a person, most of it comes from this, uh, this this just long statement from Ethan, where in a sentence Ethan kind of describes his character, and I don't I don't think it's like bad or lazy writing at all because really everything he says in that sentence, like I said, can be taken um, from all the information given, but that's really like the sentence that that captures everything he is. Uh, And anything outside of that is just these little details that we kind of have to, like, pick up. Um, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't want flashbacks or anything, but I'd like to just spend time with him as an individual. um, Just because of how much time uh, these movies spend on talking about these kind of organizations like IMF and the CIA and stuff to have a character and you know like with Billy Credo's character in Mission Impossible 3 the idea of government corruption to maintain status quo is already one that that's been here um, so I, he is a great character to to explore that idea even further with um, and i think they do a good job it's just maybe there's a personal thing i would i would have liked to have to have spent more time with him and his criticisms and and his motivations
0: yeah, I certainly wouldn't complain for more, uh, more Solomon Lane. Um. So, and just moving on to another character, uh, with Ethan, I feel like this is the first film where we really get a deep dive into the psyche of what what is Ethan Hunt. Um, like in, in Mission Impossible Three, you know, we spent a lot of time with him, and his relationships, and, and it was very good. I felt for the first time like I knew him as a character, but I now. Macquarie really seems much more interesting. Just really trying to dive into what makes this guy tick, and I think like with that first scene, we we get a rather fascinating aspect. I like I think what Macquarie is framing Ethan as, and and looking back over the series, it makes sense. Like Ethan is the guy who saves people, and and I think uh, Lane realizes that. So the thing he does to motivate Ethan. You know, to do what he wants for the rest of the film. You know, to keep chasing him, and then you know, as he goes to to find the things he needs, was you know to just kill an innocent person right in front of him while making Ethan absolutely helpless and watch behind glass. And so, and to you know to make Ethan feel so helpless and you know, and you know not able to 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 do what his entire you know instinct is telling him to do. You know to save this person. Is you know making the so what that does is it makes Ethan for the rest of the film the rest of the story, he's essentially pursuing um Lane kind of for vengeance even though it's not not in the end you know it's not quite revenge it's more to capture him get off the street but there's also I th- I feel like it's kind of a very, almost the same motivation as revenge you know he killed this innocent person and you know he 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 made Hunt feel completely helpless and killed this innocent person and now Hunt is gonna you know just turn into an absolute maniac to find this person like we we spend the entire film where you know with with the first act we have all these things happening you know the imf is shut down but ethan's not gonna stop he's like living on the run he's got this beard like this very spartan lifestyle he's been you know spending the last year just all completely uh, consumed with trying to find this one guy who did this to him um and then we get to the end where even though know, Ethan is willing to do whatever it takes to 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 see the mission through, like he will, like he'll hang off a plane, he'll do all, he'll go into the Taurus and almost drown himself. Like he's going to do whatever it takes to get to see the mission through, but he's it's never at the expense of people. Like when if it comes with, between like Benji and the mission, he'll put the mission at risk to save Benji. You know, he'll he'll also kind of save the mission as well, but. He's He's going to save his friends. he's going to do what it takes to save people even if it means you know memorizing 500 you know you know a couple thousand you know, a couple thousand numbers and bank accounts and giving himself up to the enemy like but he will do that if if that's what it takes to save save Benji it's, it's I don't know it's just I find it kind of fascinating the way Macquarie's is able to come in in the fifth film. And he'll give us kind of the definitive version of the character that doesn't contradict anything that came before, but also gives us so much more.
1: Yeah, he uses everything that that's kind of already defined him, and he uses that for the plot, you know? Because um, we see this guy who's, like you said, he's going to... It's like the mission before anything else except for people, and then, you know, the mission... Could potentially fail because of the people surrounding it and things like that, but that's always kind of been tangential to the primary, um, the primary plot of the previous films, um, a lot of peas. Uh, but with this film, that's kind of the whole, the whole point is it's the mission and it's nothing else. I've been disavowed. I feel like. The idea of being abandoned by, by your government, despite the, that you know that being the entire purpose of Ghost Protocol, I feel that hanging over this film a lot more than I did in that film. Um, you know, primarily because we're constantly cutting to uh, to Hanley and uh and everything going on on that side of the story, but here you know it is this is this isn't even about like the mission for IMF anymore. Like this is my mission. This is what I have to accomplish. Um, my motivations have been made more clear than ever. It's not about loyalty to any of these things. It's this is what I was supposed to accomplish. You are you're representative of everything that I've been trying to stop. One of the things that I really liked uh, on this viewing is... Um, with with the previous films and with so many films in the genre it is kind of about that one thing it's like this guy has chemical weapons or this guy has russian launch codes or this guy has has whatever and ethan's life has been a series of stopping that guy like the guy who has this the guy who has that and now we find lane and you know when he's catching uh, benji up to date he's like this was lane this was lane this was lane all of these guys that we've been stopping you know like they're just they're a result of people like Lane. You know, we're, we're fighting the incidents that happen because of someone like this. You know, all of, all of the yarn leads back to this guy. And so I think, especially after marathoning these movies, that's what makes the threat Lane poses so much more, like, in your face and severe, is the fact, you know, we've just burned through a lot of people with all of these different weapons they're selling and whatever, that, you know, causing all of all of the mayhem that they do, but this is the guy that you gotta worry about. Cause this is the guy who's arming them. This is the guy who ensures that the plan happens. And I think that it really works when you have Ethan as a character just stop at nothing and fixate on this guy because he represents everything he's tried to stop for the past two decades of films.
0: Yeah. And I, I like that the film is is actively questioning Ethan throughout. You know, you you have Huntley who's just like Ethan is just a crazy person. You know, he he says you know, Hunt is both fireman and arsonist. He's created this threat to justify his own existence. Like H- Hunt is this you know, this person who's been who is literally only lives for the mission. What does a guy like that do if the mission stops and the IMF is closed? Well, he you know it, it, like the world has changed and it doesn't need Hunt anymore. What does Hunt do? Well, Hunt just c- keeps on creating needs to to justify his own existence. Um and then you have, you know, Brandt Also, who kind of, I just, I just love his. He kind of has this role as the voice of reason whenever, whenever the plot just gets so ridiculous. Like someone would say something, and Brandt's always said, like with, with the logical question. And Brandt is like, "Dude, you are crazy. You line, We're not going to kidnap the British Prime Minister." Uh or uh, yeah, after um. Benji is kidnapped, and Ethan's like, "This is what he wanted. He knew this would happen. He knew he knew we'd be right here." And he, he's like, "Can you see it? Don't you see it?" And and Brad's just like, "What? What is wrong with you?" And like the, the film is very actively making us, the audience, question whether or not Hunt has gone off the deep end as well. Even though we know he's right with the syndicate, he's 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 still doing kind of crazy things.
1: Yeah, and I th- I love that we have characters in the film. Um... Who are bringing that to attention? Like you, you mentioned Brand, and he's he's serving largely the same role he did in Ghost Protocol, um, of being the guy who's there to call everything being done in question. Uh, like I mean, you already brought up him being like, we can't we can't kidnap the prime minister. And what's funny, you know, that could be said in a movie without him in this series, and we the audience are like, all right, that's what we're doing. Um, but here we've got a character who's like, no, you can't just say that. It, like, that doesn't just become the new mission because you happen to think, let's do that. Um, he's ha- like, everything has to be brought under scrutiny with his character because he, more than anyone else in the IMF, is aware of things of the way things work outside of the IMF. And then you have the additional character of Hunley, uh, who says uh, a line like, "You're you're Sorry. Your unorthodox methods are indistinguishable from chance, and your results look suspiciously like luck.
0: And he Cause... is not wrong.
1: <laughs> exactly. You know, like with these movies, uh, you know, he brings up the ending of Ghost Protocol. It, it chips a building when it lands in the sea. They're getting closer and closer to failure with a lot of these missions, and there's no oversight. And these close calls, like we don't really think about them as an audience, because close calls are excitement. You know, it's drama. It's it's everything that these kind of thriller action movies are supposed to be. But now you've got a character who's coming in and saying, like, yeah, we all we almost let that hit a hit a populated area, and the CIA knew nothing about it, and we were relying on these people. Who, who pretty much have nothing other than these harebrained plans that they're coming up with at the last minute, you know, they're not bringing it to these meetings and 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 really having the ins and outs of it poked and prodded to make sure it all holds up. Most of these new plans come from like, well, that mission didn't go great, now it's just us four in this building. I say we do this now. And, and like I said, in the other movies, it's fine and it's great, but it's cool that this movie is placing characters who are asking us the audience to think like, is this cool? Is this okay? Cause it's like you said, it suspiciously looks like luck. Um, so yeah, the fact that it's kind of asking us audiences to participate in these kind of questions. Uh, I enjoy a lot.
0: And I love that we just spent the first hour of this podcast, just talking about a story in a mission impossible film. Like <laughs> that's awesome. Let's just move into some, just talking about some of the action. Cause there's a lot of great action, in this film, you know, and, and you know, I remember when the trailers for this movie Kate first came out, and the trailers like heavily featured the the A four hundred sequence. They'd be like, oh my gosh, spoilers! You gave away the entire film. And I like that, that they just did that in the first five minutes of the movie, and then it's just gone. Like, where that's just the the movie opening. Um, and speaking of that, the, the trailer, the marketing for this this entire series has been great. Strapping your guy like directly behind a, pro- a propeller on a plane and lifting off and flying like. Tom Cruise is crazy. He really is. And, and we're it, all
1: the better for it.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing shot. It's it's a, you know it, it doesn't really feature much of the story, but uh, it's fun. Uh, but that whole sequence is quite a lot of fun, you know, where they're like, you know, the package is in the plane. Yes, the package is in the plane. We get <laughs> or, uh, Like, Luther, what are you doing here? And I'm not. You know, I'm going to hack to the satellite. I can't authorize that. He's <laughs> just like, these idiot children. What am I doing here? Um, and then Ethan's entrance is just beautiful where you know, everything's panic panic and then he like runs up directly towards the camera and the Mission Impossible theme you know comes blaring you know can you open the door? Oh, you
1: got that hair blowing in the wind?
0: Oh yeah it's just a great little sequence you know introducing the team the camaraderie and giving us this stupid crazy stunt.
1: Yeah, I remember the first time I watched it whenever they he opens the back door first and then he finally opens the other door and he's just like the wind just forces him in there and he hits all like I jumped and like audibly exclaimed because it caught me so off guard, but it feels like... His
0: entire spine explodes.
1: But it feels so real and so dangerous. and uh, yeah, Macquarie has a way of... I think I brought this up with Abrams. I'm going to bring it up again with Macquarie, but in a much different way. He portrays speed in such, like...
0: Such Sp- an Yeah, By insane... actually really going fast.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it, I mean, it makes his job easier. Um, but it just... There, there is a sense of, of danger without being you know without relying too much on like the stylized stuff that Abrams did, which I'm not knocking. Uh, um, but here it really does feel like we're right there with these people and and everything we're doing despite how much fun it may be on screen just feels like you feel the weight of uh, of like death and danger just at any corner because of, of what's going on and yeah, that whole that initial scene, and, and I love the way we lead into the title with, you know, uh, the parachute going off and being pulled from the plane.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, then moving on to what is probably the the most celebrated sequence in this film is the opera house sequence. Um, and I'm just a sucker for, for sequences that are kind of built around music. Uh, Snyder does this a lot just where you kind of have this like really imposing music that sets the entire tone and feel of the, of the scene and this sequence is just I'm, like a little masterpiece, and the the that all of that really comes back to Macquarie's direction here. You know, he, he's he's a total wizard with action, but also he is like a perfect thriller director. He just knows just how to build the tension. This sequence is what? What do you think? 15, 20 minutes long, um, and it just builds and builds. You know, we're, we're, The characters, they kind of all come into the opera, then we're introduced to different characters and the antagonists, and then it was just they're kind of just weaving their way through the backstage, and it just kind of just builds. And, and there's a technique he uses to set geography, and the geography in this entire scene is incredible. Like, if he had not set up the geography as well as he did, it would have been incomprehensible, because there are so many moving pieces. What he does throughout the enti- that entire, this—you you know, for the, the ten minutes he spends just setting up where people are and w- in relation to everything else, and what the objective is, and it's all done without dialogue. Um, like he'll have like Ethan walking by, you know, half Ethan in camera walking, and then he'll kind of pass b- pass by something, and then the camera will like rack focus to the other person in the distance. They're going their own direction, and he does that a lot. Where he's, he's, he'll just have one person in the foreground, and then rack focus to show you exactly where the other person in the background is in relation to them. To, and, and all of this is building to this. Uh, attempted assassination where you have ethan he's fighting up on these fighting on the lights with this guy and ilsa's getting ready to shoot the the archduke and then then the other um then the other assassin guy's in the lighting booth and ethan is finally he he beats the one guy he's left he's left with the choice you know he has one bullet and then there's there's two gunmen pointing at the archduke and and the scene is just building and building and building we have like and we're just kind of cutting back and forth between Ethan, the, the assassin and Ilsa and Benji and all the, and as, uh, but it, it's, all this is happening over like a minute. We're just, it's just, we we're watching Ethan essentially process what he's going to do with the very limited options he has. He ends up shooting the Duke and, but all of that's done very silently. And the music is just building and building. It's, it's just this incredible sequence. And then after the, after he fires, like all hell breaks loose and everyone starts shooting at everyone else. And Benji comes and tackles the guy, but, since he's set all the geography, we can have all these quick cuts between all these different places, but we know exactly who you know where everyone is and what they're trying to do in a- at every stage. It's just, it's amazing. I don't know if any of that made sense, but it it makes sense in the movie.
1: <laughs> if Macquarie had uh, had written that, it would have made sense. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, honestly, we we could probably do an entire podcast over this sequence because there's so much to it. You know, like one, it's kind of like introducing us to to. I guess the main plot or like this is really whenever the action in the film starts, and we start moving from from plot detail to plot detail. Um, and we, we you know, we're reuniting Benji with Ethan. There's a lot of stuff going on and and a lot of good banter. And then whenever the scene actually like the sequence really begins, like you said it's 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 begun by this amazing use of music where I remember whenever we first start following Ilsa up the stairs and you've got this very soft elegant kind of old-school 40s film kind of, of sound um, you know and we, we're pretty much just and it's a beautiful composition too and we're pretty much just letting the music define Ilsa during that moment um, and it's done again where uh, we're, we're backstage and and he's establishing where where Ilsa is and where Ethan is and where Benji is and the the two assassins and everything going on, and she's in that tower and the music just plays this long note as she approaches the screen and uh and like the window within the tower that she's in kind of frames her face and the music's beautiful and and you know Re- Rebecca Ferguson is uh. Is all in mega. It's just this really, really great scene, and then we cut to the weapon, and the music just gets loud and bombastic and crazy, and and it's controlling the ebb and flow of the scene. It's the music in the scene is just amazing, um, and then the the fight scene itself is so, like so cool and so inventive, where uh, he'll just he'll pull back from like a view from like just below. Um, but enough to where we can really see what's going on, and they're like swinging around the wires that's holding the the catwalks up. And there's a moment in it that's like one of my favorite moments of the fight because it really gives me like the Indiana Jones kind of scrappy, you know, brawler vibe, where. Where Ethan feels like he's kind of he's got he's finally been given a break and he's on his back and then the wire starts pulling him up and he he sees <laughs> what's going on he's like oh, you can you can tell he, he sees what's happening and he's he's uh, signaling to the other guy it's just it's so much fun there's moments of that like that kind of quirky fun sense of personality that gets in there but it's still it's dramatic
0: or when he does that like, running kick and like the guy doesn't even budge
1: oh and. Then, or whenever he does it again, like you know, he's he kicks him, and he's he's not, or he doesn't fall off. He's able to catch himself. It's just like there's so many. The fact that we've got a really really cool choreographed fight scene on such like such a small space is kind of amazing. Um, and then you're like, know, what? Like once the fighting is mostly finished, and and we've got a, uh, we're trying to figure out us as the audience, like you know Elsa is pointing her gun at this guy this guy's pointing his gun over here Benji knows that this guy is over here uh Ethan sees everything that's going on and i remember like kind of experience like not anxiety but just like freaking out as he's going back and forth i'm like we well, you, you can't shoot Elsa you just can't you can't do that in this movie but you <laughs> know shooting shooting the bodyguard that, or the the assassin like that you can't do that and so whenever he makes the decision to actually shoot the uh, the prime minister. I'm like, oh, that's such an incredible like on the spot decision to make, and and just the wrench that it throws in the situation, and and <clears throat> Ilsa shooting the the other guy, and and now Benji thinks that you know she's killing, she's trying to kill him, and
0: she s- tried to shoot me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's just so many things going on, and so many different perspectives, and so so many people acting according to their perspective. It's it's just amazing that the whole sequence holds up in the end. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's so good and I, I, you mentioned Benji but i love the way he just immediately just runs in there and tackles that guy like look how, look how far benji's come i'm so proud of him um you know, he's way he's way outmatched but he did it he didn't even his hesitate his
1: speech to ethan is just oh. absolutely fantastic
0: you know we, we talked about it in 3 there's a a type of you know emotion from character development that you can only get when you've been watching series for a long time and just watching where this this guy has come from the goofy guy at the computer um, to this you know legitimate you know fully qualified member of the team who has this incredible emotional connection to ethan and you know we open the film and he's very unhappy <laughs> i love the polygraph you know state your name the king of norway <laughs> see that was a lie i'm actually third to the throne uh but then you know when he finally gets to the questions and you know they're asking where are hunted you know ethan is out in the field and i'm here answer for answering for it we are not friends and he's got this like real powerful emotion like man where did where did that come from simon Pegg? but then he he tops that later on with after the um after the opera scene and Ethan's trying to get him to go home, he's like, Yo, that's not your decision to make, Ethan. I am a field agent. I know the risk. And more than that, I am your friend. So I'm staying. And that is all we're gonna be saying about that. And there's that really awkward pause, and Ethan's like, Okay. But it's just it just ha- that speech and all the emotion behind it from Benji and you really feel their friendship where he, he just he kinda worships Ethan, you know. Ethan's you know always been there for him and he, you know, and, you know, he doesn't even know entirely what Ethan's up to, but he trusts him, and he's going to you know, risk life and limb to help Ethan do whatever he needs to do, because, as he says, I am your friend. And I want to cry, because it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, I think with, with the character of Ethan, just being defined by, like, putting his friends in front of everything, even the mission, which he, like, just is consistently obsessing over, you kind of allow for those kind of bonds to form, where... I don't feel like you're reaching for the sake of the story to have this kind of undying loyalty from both uh, Benji and from Luther. These, these guys, you know, where, where Brant's like, um, you know, you see this as the only option because you want to, and, and you know, Luther is saying, saying you know, sometimes Ethan is the only one who can see what has to be done. Uh, you've got these guys who are just, have experienced so much with him that they, they give these speeches and they're, they're there to back them up over these things. And it, it totally works in the movie. It doesn't feel contrived or anything.
0: And I, I just love how, how innocent he is with, and he just, Ethan is god and he can do anything. Like when, when they're, when they're setting up the Taurus heist, he's like why well, he just holding you breath for two minutes? But then you got to count this. Oh, three minutes. Yeah, you can do that, Ethan. He's <laughs> like just stop volunteering me for things, uh, Benji. And, like he brings a lot of fun to these, you know, incredibly dense exposition scenes by just being, you know, Simon Pegg because he's awesome and he's hilarious.
1: Yeah, I mean, he can say anything from a script and it's great. Uh, Before we move on too much further into the action, I do want to go back one more to characters to bring up who might actually be, after this rewatch, my favorite character of this movie, which is Ilsa Faust. Um, I think that she is really, really great in this movie, Uh, both Rebecca Ferguson as an actress and just the character. I feel like, of everybody, I found her the most fascinating this rewatch. Where she's pretty much experiencing um, what Solomon felt, where like this realization that I'm just a tool to do horrible things, things just as bad as what the bad guy does, for the sake of keeping the status quo, I'll be thrown away the blink of an eye.
0: She's she's trying to maintain her soul and all that. That's what makes her so compelling to
1: me: is watching this constant internal battle often without any sort of real dialogue uh, There's she's a really really great like emotive actress I think she's able to say a lot with just like expressions and things like that uh, but we, we constantly feel like we're, we're witnessing this kind of internal dialogue she's having with herself without just on the nose exposition about where where she is and what she's feeling and stuff but you know she's being used by Solomon she's being used by Atley. um she and she's seeing these other people who have either are experiencing the same thing or have experienced the same thing and you know you have that moment where she's she's laying out the options to Ethan and and the last option is like let's let's leave this behind because
0: oh boy
1: <laughs> yeah i love that line um but you know she sees what they could become in solomon uh, and pretty, she's pretty much just a little bit further along where Ethan could be headed. Um, because right now it, it seems like Ethan's able to do his job without worrying too much about, you know, the moral qua- uh, quandaries that can kind of happen. But, but she's experiencing this. She's seeing just how ugly this life can be. Uh, and so watching that constant struggle, you know, how, how far do I let Solomon go? How far do I let Atlee use me? How far, like, you know, am I comfortable with using Ethan the way I am? When do I just tell him, let's, like, is this her character is so fascinating? And, and, uh, I actually forgot a lot about the, like, the plot details and the way things work out from my first viewing. And so, once again, like, maybe even more than the first time, uh, I was just like, constantly on the edge of my seat to see what she was going to do and and how she was going to react and and where the film was going to end with her as a character and uh i thought the writing for her was great and i thought ferguson just nailed the role
0: yeah she's like literally being used by two separate villains while also trying to like she she won't refuse to kill innocent people but but she's also trying to having having to find a way that that she can you know get the mission done without killing without doing anything you know too immoral but also pl- please these evil guys at the same time. And, you know, both of them are using her, and at- Atlee is just, like, shamelessly using her. Um, you know, he, he literally sends her back to do- to Solomon Lane, empty-handed, knowing that he's going to kill her simply because she knows too much. She knows the syndicate exists, so she has to die. So he just literally like, just throws her to the wolves without a second's thought. And she's just... You get how absolutely helpless and just tired she feels the entire game like everyone is just using her and she just wants to leave. and you know, she you know she she's found kind of a kindred spirit in Ethan and she's just like come away with me we like these people they don't need a, you know they don't need us to find someone else and they don't even deserve us um and 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 she she's kind of what I love the most about her is that she's kind of placed in the film as like she's in the spot where the classic femme fatale would be placed but I don't even feel comfortable calling her that cuz she feels like so much more um you know, she has all of that mystery and allure and that just kind of that you know, the weirdly fascinating element about you know the, the, you know a you know a woman you know this mysterious woman of you know dubious morals but the the film it just doesn't a lot of films would just leave the character in that space but the the movie but macquarie isn't interested in do that he's 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 interested in the person and you know despite having all the surface elements of you know the classic femme fatale she's just another character where you she feels like she has this internal life and there's like just constantly peeling back more and more layers into this incredibly fascinating person and just rebecca Ferguson as you said she's so emotive and just so empathetic as a character but she's also like just incredibly you know cool and awesome it's just yeah it's an incredible performance that you know is able to you know to give off that awesome you know Agent vibe, but also this deep well of humanity that you just you can't help but care for.
1: I feel like it's the combination of a lot of a lot of different um, roles that I feel like uh, female characters in this genre get put into that, when isolated, are very one dimensional. But it creates like a full, well-rounded character here because she's got that very old-school, elegant kind of classical beauty and. Uh, uh, and the lure of those movies, and she's she feels dangerous, and you got those kind of like that mystique, and the, like you said, the dubious morals that surround her, like the kind of classic femme fatale, could do- seems like could double cross you at a moment's notice, and often does, you know. After you know the but whole she'll feel the, bad the water it. situation, uh, but yeah, where a lot of other movies would just let that happen, we're seeing her from the perspective of other people, and I think that's where this movie elevates itself above. Uh, a lot of other films' treatments of female characters like this is because in a lot of films, she is just kind of like this classical beauty that we spend time with and is gonna help with the mission, or she's this femme fatale who's gonna double-cross you. And in this, she's oftentimes both, but once she exits the scene, um, we then go back to her with a new scene. We get to spend time with her after the fact, you know, after the betrayal, uh, after the mission fails, after she gets what she wants, we we don't just cut from her. We're not just seeing her from Ethan's perspective. We get to live in the moment with her. We get to actually see all of the different ways that she's just being used by all of these other people and how it's how it's creating this internal struggle. And I think that's that's what creates such a strong character with her is is because we're we're experiencing all of the decisions she's making with her. And yet we don't lose that uh, that uh, air of mystique about her. It's just a really, really cool, really well-written character.
0: And I love how both like her, Ethan, and Lane's arcs all kind of come to a head at that cafe scene towards the end, which is just an amazing scene. I, I, I remember back... A couple times over underrated. I talked about you know how my my favorite some of my favorite types of scenes in movies are where you have like just characters sitting around talking, having a conversation, but where that conversation is like a power struggle, where this this, this Titanic struggle of wills and wits is happening, but it's all just people sitting around talking to each other. And I think this this, this that that final scene at the cafe is just this beautiful um example of that. Where Lane, you know, he's he's you know he's been manipulating the entire thing. He has Benji there with a bomb, and he thinks, you know, I've got everyone exactly where I want them. And then, and for a while, the conversation looks like Ethan is just kind of stalling. He doesn't have any more cards, and then he comes around, with, you know, I memorized it. Without this list, you're nothing, and you know, you, you you want your money? The boarder is just gonna have to beat it out of me. And you just get chills at that line, but. And then you just you, – it, it's just this beautiful way that Ethan – you know, Lane has had all the power in that scene up till then. And then Ethan comes back with, you know what, I'm a crazy man and I memorized all these big accounts. Uh, and, you know, the entire power just shifts. And then Ilsa – you know, him and Ilsa are able to come together to where, you know, the entire film is Ilsa trying to, you know, maintain – trying to, you know, save her life, but also essentially save her soul in this situation where she could go over to, to – to, uh, you know, she, she could go over to join Lane and he would welcome her in and give her a place and purpose and probably also protect her from Adley. Um, but she, you know, she, uh, she unwilling to do that or, or she, you know, she could kill. She just, you know, save herself and run by killing, uh, you know, Benji and Ethan. But you no, know, she kind of come, her and Ethan kind of come together to, to save Benji and save each other's lives. And, and in a way, can you know, kind of saving her, her own soul and saving her, you know, her morality in that scene. I just love how it all kind of comes together where like, Ethan, like they, they they need Ethan. So they can't, they can't kill Ethan, but they want to kill Ilsa. So she's like hiding behind Ethan, shooting them. It's, uh, it's just a beautiful scene. Again, it, it, it feels a lot like the, op- it's like, a, like a smaller version of the opera sequence where it's just all these different pieces and, and, and motivations kind of all coming to a head, but you've, been so well versed in where you know where everyone is and what they want to that you can have this crazy scene going on and you're never confused
1: Yeah, I, I think this just highlights McQuarrie as a director where he can take any situation regardless of scale and make it like the most exciting thing that could possibly be happening You know, like th- the ending of Jack Reacher is just like one guy going downhill with a car with a couple other guys shooting at him all leading to one room where another guy is and then you've got huge set pieces here. And then you've got, you know, conversations at a table. And there's, like, you could argue that any one of those situations is more exciting than the other. Uh, he's just, like, whatever the situation is, he he frames it in such a way where, like, my eyes are glued to the screen and I'm on the edge of my seat. Um, and I think what gives uh, this scene the edge over some of those other scenes is just... Like, the emotion in the scene. Simon Pegg is giving, again, like, this is some amazing dramatic work from him. Him reading, uh, you know, just this, these cold lines of dialogue that's being fed to him from uh, from uh, Sean Harris. And, like, the the tears swelling in his eyes.
0: And I love how, like, Benji is kind of like the little brother of the team where everyone's, like, really protective of him. Uh, and and then when Ethan comes there, he just kind of pauses and lays his hand on Benji's shoulder. And Benji's like obviously terrified, his tears in his eyes, just like, God, oh, it's, it's so sweet.
1: It's one of the most, like the re- most heavy moments of the series at this point, because uh, like, I mean, I've talked a lot about just how dangerous the action always feels, but like there's just, there's a whole other level to this. Um, the fact that the movie just lets us sit there looking at Benji strapped with the bomb for so long and it's not just jokes back and forth like oh how's Ethan gonna do it like we're we're with Ethan just like holding our breath, just completely panicking at the thought of losing this character. Uh, it's it's so well done and it's the perfect way um, that Lane would would use him because, like we said, at this point, he's rarely done anything himself. He's always using other people. And now, you know, he knows the ins and outs of Ethan. He knows that he values his friends above everything. And so once again, Benji is just a tool that he, in his arsenal that he's using against him. And so like the fact that this would be, you know, kind of the beginning of this climax, it makes so much sense based on just who he is as an antagonist.
0: Yeah, I, I, I want to talk about what Shane said. Where he says the, the film loses some steam in the third act, and I—that's a criticism I've heard around. Like always—it's oh, it's just a foot chase in London. Like, we want a big, massive set piece. And I, I like what you said earlier. Like it just—you can, t- if you know what you're doing—you can take any size of an action. You know, you can have a fist fight between two people and be more exciting than the entire world blowing up. And I think I—I I love this actually this scene, and I, it's kind of similar to um. To Mission Impossible 3 where you have your set pieces then for the climax you go in for a far more far smaller more focused more intimate climax and personally I love that like it's like like, you know, like the, the Empire Strikes Back where you, ha- you have all your big action then you go back go down for a climax I love when action films kind of have the guts to give us something exciting but character focus you know it's not about the spectacle it's about these characters you know fighting for their lives at this moment and i find that entire climax exhilarating just the foot chase through london where they're you know they don't have guns and they're trying like taking out these guys one by one where <laughs> top cruise like takes the guy you know through a window into the house that we follow ilsa then she runs back up and then as she runs by he comes out the other window with the guy it's just like a very creative you know very creative and thrilling action scene that you know, fully exploits the the Cold War vibe it's been toying with. Where this is like the most Cold War thriller thing you can do. You know, is chasing each other through these these foggy cobblestone streets, um, and I just love it. And then going to to the ending, the climax. You know, they, they were t- you know Macquarie and Cruise were, were like racking their brains to f- try and figure out a way to to have Tom Cruise and Solomon Lane face off, where Cruz would or where Ethan would kill Lane. And that would be the climax, but they couldn't, they, they just couldn't find one that felt earned or satisfying, so they decided we're not going to kill him, and we're just going to stick him in a glass box like he did Ethan in the beginning of the film, and it is so satisfying. Like, you, you think he's beaten Ethan, he, he jumps down, and then the walls close in, and all the IMF comes out, and then the music just kind of blares, it's like this super smug version of the uh, the uh, Mission Impossible theme, and... and Uh, I I just love how the way Sean Harris plays indignant. (laughs) It's just like his entire face is like about to explode with how upset he is that he got played like this, you know. Because he's the manipulator. Um, it's just so satisfying to to see this guy who has been you know playing with people's lives the entire film just stuck in a box where everybody could smirk at him. Uh, it, I, yeah, it, it, I I agree with the, them. You know, it is the the perfect ending for this film.
1: So I, I get where you know the opinion that it loses steam, and and I'm not so far towards it that I'd agree with that. Um, I think where the semblance of truth in that is for me, I think so much of the emotion is just jam packed into the scene at the table. That once the the bomb is diffused, it does just kind of become a foot chase and it's well shot, but I feel like you for that the brief moment and it, it doesn't last too long at all, but for that moment the stakes feel like they're kind of gone. Like, you know, most with most film climaxes, the stakes of of not winning aren't lost until like right at the very end. And so to you know, to free Benji, and and end on just, just this foot chase. It does feel like okay. Well, now it's just people shooting at Ethan again, and we've kind of had movies of that. At this point, you know, like I don't feel like the consequences of this mission not going perfectly. They're no longer Benji blowing up, so it's kind of like I'm breathing uh, a sigh before the climax is even done, and I think. That's where some people's frustration comes from: is the fact that you're like, all right, you're wiping the sweat from your brow and you're you're breathe, you're finally exhaling, but we're not done with the climax yet. So now we're just gonna sit and watch this this foot chase that's really cool. Uh, but for me, the reason why I don't feel like that's too big of a criticism is because watching the walls, the glass walls go up around Lane is just so satisfying that it makes the whole thing worth it. And like the music, it's this very James Bondish kind of like loud in your face stylized brass and and uh holding the gun up to the glass just like shooting again and again. Like pretty much he he goes in from one scene he goes from this master manipulator to like this angry kid. I know (laughs) it's not gonna work. I'm gonna point my gun and shoot at you because I'm so mad. And it's like down to like the the twitching of the eye it's just it's so good
0: yeah it, it is literally the worst thing you could do to a character like him
1: yeah is is to he's not dead he has to live with the knowledge that i was played this time and yeah so. if you
0: kill him he's just a martyr in his own mind yeah, you 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 play him you outsmart him at his own game that, that, that's gonna get him yeah, I think it's just a fantastic. I I don't I don't even mind it at all. I think it's just a fantastically well realized uh, foot chase. Um, so we, I I feel like we we probably should mention a couple of these action these uh, other action scenes. Uh, I think that the Taurus is a really solid scene. It's a bit too CGI for me. Like for for a, like any other film it would be fantastic, but for for a film that for a series that is so based on practical, it's a bit. Too obviously CGI. That said, it's a really tense sequence. Like it has the heartbeat is playing underneath it all, and uh just you want you want to hold your breath for the entire time, but you're not Tom Cruise, so you can't. Uh and it's so uncomfortable, it just goes and goes and towards the end when he finally runs out of air. Like most films when they when they show drowny, they just show a person thrashing it, but then they go still. But this actually shows what it would be like, where he literally you know, he he breathes in water and he's like choking, and it's so uncomfortable to watch, um, but really effective. Um, and then just the mu- the way the music comes in as Ilsa grabs him and they're spinning around, it's and the camera's like trying to keep up with him as they're the waters you know shooting in a circle. It's just a- it's a really well done scene again. You know, too much CGI, but still I think a very intense and um and just you know gripping scene.
1: Despite the CGI, this might be my favorite sequence of the movie. I have never felt one. I just struggle with like underwater scenes like they just they give me anxiety every time I watch them. And this is like standing like the king of those kind of scenes for me. And I remember the first time watching it thinking like how crazy it all was like even the even if you give me like the greatest motorcycle chase scene ever. Which you know at the time this probably was or the greatest whatever in in this scene you know it's it's not surprising what I'm getting like I'm getting a motorcycle chase in a Mission Impossible movie you know obviously anybody could have called that but like being in this underwater like data mine with this this thing moving around and it just felt it caught me so off guard and and with the heartbeat and everything I was like. I remember there was a moment where I actually realized that like I was uncomfortable and it was because I wasn't breathing and I'm like I pretty much just had to let, like let out this long exhale because I I felt so in the space of Ethan and like establishing the whole oxygen thing on his arm like that visual so we always know where he's at and, and again it's it could become one of those things was like okay we get it the scene's already tense enough you don't have to keep layering things in but like for some reason in this case and it's because all of the extra wrinkles are all under like the umbrella of we're underwater with a limited amount of like breath whenever he drops it and he's trying to figure out which one and then he's like swimming against the current to get to the other and like as we're like we're finally there it reminds me a lot of of winter soldier of putting in that last chip in there you know and he's getting shot whereas in here like I love that we see him like start to try to gasp for breath and he keeps pulling in water and he's like violently like almost like uncharacteristically like violently convulsing uh like for this kind of movie where it just like you said it's, it is uncomfortable to watch I'm like I know he can't die but like man they're really getting close to killing Ethan and it just it feels so real and I don't know everything about that scene um, and the way he's trying like gotta use the current uh, to help with his momentum and then Ilsa comes down there and and she misses it at first again like constant mess ups but I never feel fatigued with, with the constant mess ups and wrinkles that are being thrown in it's just such an incredible sequence to me
0: yeah, because there's a little ticking clock. You, it's not like they're just extending the scene forever. You know, there is only so long this scene can go before everyone just is dead. And then afterwards, after uh, you know, she resuscitates him and, and Benji comes in. There's this really sweet uh, scene between Benji and Ethan. It's like, "We we got it," and and Ethan is like obviously delirious and half dead, and Benji is just so pure and good, and he's just too good for this world. But just, I love how sweet they are together. And then this leads into. Uh, the car slash motorcycle chase, um, like just, the car chase alone is incredible. Like this would have probably, you know, been ranked up there with some of the best car movie car chases. Uh, you know, it's, it's so fast. Like again, as you said, Macquarie has such a great way of showing speed. The entire thing as they're, you know, he's just barreling through the city and constantly like hitting the walls. And it's, and, you know, Tom Cruise is actually driving the car for most of that, um, and just the way they use the car I love the way he spins around to take out both bikers at the same time and then the, guy, the bikers on the hood and he's about to shoot them and they slam into the truck and it throws them off it's just like it's like as intricate as a, like a fist fight but it, with cars <laughs> the scene where they he crashes right next to uh, Luther and, and Brent <laughs> just that moment where they're just like looking at each other and Ethan waves and you have uh, the best part about it is uh Benji's delayed take, where he's like, he he's kind of looking. He's like, "Hey, isn't that?" And they drive away. It's uh, just perfect comedic timing. And then Brandt's like, "It's a high speed chase. Just had to have the four by four. He just had to have it." Oh yeah, H-Hip and Luther bickering is just is adorable. Yeah, just great scene. But then it evolves into a motorcycle chase, and I think this might just be. I, I have you know, we don't actually see a lot of motorcycle chases, but I think this might just be the best one ever up there with with fallouts now but um it is, it's so it's stressful dude i have i don't know how they made them look like they're going this fast but they're going really really fast and That's it's really the, really dangerous and i want them to stop because it, it it's not good for my blood pressure
1: is it like they're the camera isn't really doing anything flashy in fact there's scenes where like we're just uh where it's an overhead shot and we're just above the highway and we're kind of looking down and then they drive past and we follow them up and it's like doesn't look CGI. There's no way it could really be them. But like, I feel like I just watched Tom Cruise go by it. Like 140. Like, it's just, it's insane. And, you know, as he's leaning and his I'm like your knee is like a foot off the ground. You're going to destroy your legs. Oh,
0: oh but the, when he nicks his knee dude. on the ground. Yeah. Oh, dude. Um, yeah. And then I love that. Like the, most of the car chasing of the motorcycle chase is just, uh, this, the sounds of the motor. Like there's no music. It's just, you know, Use the motor, and then obviously the you know, the sounds around it. But uh, it's really, really intense, and it just it just gets to you. It's just a very similar technique that he did with Jack Reacher, with that most of that chase, yeah, it's just a f- absolutely fantastic scene that just ah, uh, it's so fast, it's so scary, man. And it feels like with with this film, you know, with with Ghost Protocol, that narrative of Tom Cruise as the crazy stuntman really took off, and now. This is, like, now with, with the way Road Nation kind of upped it, it's like with every subsequent Mission Impossible film, people are like, what is Ethan Hunt going to do? What is Tom Cruise going to do now? And the dude is 52. In the, in this film, he was 52. I think he's, like, 54 in the next one. But he's still just doing all these crazy things, doing all his own stunts. like the scene where he, you know, he, like, vaults himself up the pole that he's tied to, just, like, basically using his core, like his core body strength. Like... It's crazy. Like, how does he do that? You know, the, all the crazy stunts in this movie, hanging off the plane, riding you know, riding his motorcycle at high speeds with no helmet. The man, the man's crazy. And, yeah, I'm glad they're filming him while he does it because he's going to die eventually. But at least we'll get good movies. All right. Uh, I think we've pretty well covered why this movie is amazing. Uh, um, so as you move into the soundtrack, uh, dare I ask, have you listened to the score? Well,
1: so the story about that, I did... However, I listened to it while doing homework, which ended up being completely inconsequential because by the time it ended, I was like, wait a second, I completely forgot there was music playing. Um, <laughs> I, I re-listened I re- to some of it, though. Uh, I probably have more thoughts now than before, but, uh, but yeah, I won't have too many. There's a couple that stuck out to me in, in my quick uh speedy consumption of as much of the score as I could uh,
0: did, did you notice anything particular about this score as opposed to the other ones did, did anything else anything stick out to you like you like it more like it less or do you uh,
1: I enjoyed um, I I think I enjoyed this more than the previous scores uh one of the things that you mentioned uh, early on we were talking about tone and atmosphere and this like cold War thriller and and the way that Kramer kind of uses a score to help with that that really comes across even without having to listen to like the score isolated you get that in the film but even more so just listening to the score itself uh, there's some, like the violins and, and just everything being used it sounds sharp uh and quick like there's just this this sense of threat over everything um and then uh I guess just to like to name the the track that stood out the most to me and, and what I was able to listen to was, was a Solomon Lane like to me if there was like a track to summarize the feeling you get from this kind of Cold War thriller it's this where it starts off very soft and very slow and there's slowly like hints of danger and hints of intrigue and mystery around it and all of that remains there but keeps getting more and more heightened as the track continues. It's it's really really good.
0: Yeah, I love that sequence. I wrote down that it, it sounds almost like a, like a slow mournful Star Wars ballad. Like throughout the entire track I was like this song this music really wants to like break break away and run into uh, across the stars. Like I expected like every time I was like this is going to turn into across the stars. It was, was kind of funny that way. But um yeah, it it, it is very I love the slow burn. Like it very much like Lane. The music feels like it's fuming and it's it wants to break out. Um I can I can't remember any previous Mission Impossible villain getting their own theme. I, I do find the score to be very similar to um Ghost Protocols. Like uh, Kramer brought a lot of the style and t- a lot of the style and cues and kind of the motifs. A lot of it came over from Ghost Protocol. However, whereas ghost protocol was really kind of fun and lively. This one definitely has that kind of darkness and encroaching danger that I think sets it apart. Um, a couple tracks that I want to mention, um, you know, obviously the Solomon, Solomon lane, then you have the, the a 400, which is this really kind of tense buildup and the mission impossible theme kind of blares in as Ethan runs on screen. And then, and then you have the, the, uh, you know, the, the mission impossible title sequence where Kramer does his version of the, um, the mission impossible theme. And this one is like very heavy on this really deep brass. And it sounds just, it just sounds dangerous. Um, and I like that. Then you have the, the Blenheim sequence. Uh, this is kind of like the standard, like there's a, a suspense motif that is played in a lot of the mission impossible, uh, films, but this one is kind of like big and urgent and very theatrical. Uh, it just, it's like, sounds like, Whereas usually it's played kind of very low underneath the action. This one is like kind of is allowed to just let loose and be really big and scary. Then you have A Foggy Night in London, which is which is the chase sequence. Uh, it's very fun. It's very energetic. There's a lot of urgency and danger behind it. But it also has that kind of uh, that, uh, that kind of atmosphere, you know, befitting A Foggy Night in London. Um, is one of the reasons I really love that chase sequence, because I think this music is just so urgent and has so much energy, it really complements the chase. Uh then the finally you, you the then finally you have the meet the IMF, which I love the it it just is like building this slow dawning comprehension like right alongside Lane where you you just feel something's off and something's wrong, something's wrong. And then it just comes you have this the the Mission Impossible theme just blaring in and it's just so satisfying. Um, yeah just I think a very solid score previously I would have said this my favorite but now I I might. I think I might prefer Ghost Protocols a little more over this but still very good
1: I think both really do everything they need to for the kind of film they are uh, Yeah. but because I just like the, the paranoia and the danger and the gritty tone of this one naturally I, I kind of like the music that reflects that a bit more as well
0: And finally uh, to our star rating, Uh, what would you give this film out of five stars and where does it rank in the series for you, James? Uh,
1: so currently, um, without trying to anticipate, you know, it climbing higher and, and ratings and rankings right now, it sits at like a really, really solid, sturdy four with a very much the opportunity to jump up. But just after these last two viewings, uh, a four and I would go mission impossible. Three is still my favorite. Um, I think because of how simple and straightforward the plot was it just accomplished everything it was reaching for in such a spectacular way and I still think it's the best bit of dramatic acting we've had from uh, from Tom Cruise in the series and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is amazing and and I like the kind of stylized action that Abrams brings Uh, but this is my number two uh, and then Mission Impossible 1 being my number three, uh, Ghost Protocol being number four, and then Mission Impossible 2 being like 87 or something.
0: All right. So I would actually give it five stars. Uh, it, it, I think it started like a four, then it went to four and a half. Now it's at five. I think this is like pretty much a perfect film, and it, 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 it's everything I love about the Mission Impossible series. And it is also my favorite film in the series. I, it would be, the, it would be uh, Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible 3, Ghost Protocol, Mission Impossible, and Mission Impossible 2 at the bottom. So on its initial release, it grossed 195 million domestically and 487 million uh, in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 682 million on its $150 million budget. It is the fourth highest grossing film in the series domestically under Fallout, Mission Impossible 2, and Ghost Protocol, and the third highest grossing worldwide after Fallout and Ghost Protocol. It's the eighth highest grossing film of uh, 2015 worldwide and the 11th. Uh, domestically, the highest earners that year would have been *The Force Awakens*, *Jurassic World*, and *Furious 7*. And as far as the reception, it uh, it was very it was very well received by critics. Uh, it holds a ninety three percent on Rotten Tomatoes and a seventy five on Metacritic. Um, yeah, everyone seems to like this movie. However, like the re- the reception wasn't nearly as like delirious as it was surrounding *Ghost Protocol*. I mean, but very few movies get that kind of reception. Uh, but yeah, it, as far as just the actual, just the, the general critical reception. I think I've like, I've heard from very, very, I don't even know if I've ever heard any critic that actually dislikes this movie. Like everybody seems like, like it. And it it seems to rank pretty high in the series overall.
1: I have seen like just in now that I've become more invested in the series and I'm obsessed with lists and rankings and stuff. I see this ranked at the very top, quite a few places. Uh, Like, you know, uh, I know in terms of uh, just the feedback we got Don Hannah, I think someone like we've we've had people put it at the top, uh, just in discussions with it.
0: Either the top or the, like the top three. Like it, it seems to always be around, like right around the top three.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of crossover. I've uh, been talking about the legacy as well, especially since you know it's it's not really an old film, and we're still, I think, with Fallout having come out and with two new films announced from Aquare, we're kind of living in its legacy right now. Um, you know, oh, let me. So just exactly how this installment is going to be viewed will probably remain to be seen until either the series kind of, you know, finds a close or at least until McQuarrie ends up being done with it, which, you know, who knows when that'll be. Um, But like you said, it's typically regarded as one of the best in the series, uh, consistently floating around the top three, often finding its way into that top spot. Uh, And I get it. Uh, it's, It's... an incredibly strong piece of, uh, of direction and emotion
0: yeah alright so that was Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol again I'd like to ask you guys if you enjoyed the show to please uh, go and take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes if you want to like us on Facebook we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast and if you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram we are there at Franchised Pod and if you want to find our other episodes you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com and where can people follow you James? Uh,
1: you can follow me mainly over at Letterboxd I am there as J.L. Hamry it's J-L-H-A-M-R-I um you can also join us over on facebook we are, we uh, admin a group over there called star wars fans who actually like star wars um as i mentioned earlier we might be getting some news which anyone listening will already know what that will be by the time this comes out however if you just feel super excited about the series and want to go and talk positively about it join us over there
0: and i'm also on letterbox i'm there as gabriel green uh, if you want to follow me on twitter i'm there as gabe a green and then i'm on instagram as gabe the great green uh, so next week, we will be finishing up the Mission Impossible series with Mission Impossible Fallout. And I'm already sad that we're going to be done with this because this series has been a lot of fun. Yeah,
1: it is it is really cool. At One, I'm glad that we picked it just so that I could go through it and appreciate more than I already did. You know, I I have been vocal about not really being into, uh, like, Fast and Furious and, and, and other series that this kind of gets compared to. However, like the benefit of just watching these one after the other is to see how these different, really talented directors are able to take the same kind of genre and bring new spins to it, and we've just seen so many different takes of the same basic like spy movie, stop the bad guy. And these are some strong pieces of filmmaking, and. Uh, we're going to end on a really high note with Fallout, and I can't wait to return to this series whenever McQuarrie releases the first of his
0: two new ones Yeah, I cannot wait, Um, so next week we will see you in Fallout
1: Gentlemen, this is Solomon Lane, Mr. Lane Meet the IMF